trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I hope you are ready to engage in some wrong think because we're, we're going to be reaching industrial levels of wrong think today. My friend John Harvey, the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast, joins me. John, great to have you on the show again. Thanks for having me, Brian. Now, there's a, there's a reason that I wanted to have you on the show. And, and it's uh, because I've, I've been talking a little bit about Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, over the last mm-hmm. uh, week or so. Uh, Scott Adams is in a heap of trouble right now <laughs> over some comments he made and, uh, you know, concerning race in America. And he spoke some things that I think are being characterized as racist. He's been canceled by most every newspaper that carries his comic strip. I mean, he's paying a price for having spoken up. I wanted to get your take. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've seen the clip, right? Yes, I have. Okay. Your honest assessment. I, I'm not going to prompt you with any kind of question other than, what do you think? Here we go again. You know, you know, when I first read the the article, I had seen an article, actually. Actually, I should say a story on Facebook. No, it was TikTok. Yes, I did say TikTok. Every <laughs> once in a while, I will browse TikTok under anonymous name. But, um, and so that triggered me to go watch the entire video. And uh, it, 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 it just boggles my mind. Um, you know, for those who don't know that the poll mentioned that 26% of Amer- black Americans um, don't think that uh, we basically should, don't approve of white folks, put it that way. And then another 21% didn't know. Well, that means, you know, Scott, Scott's points was 47% of, 47% of a black Americans don't believe that we should associate with white folks. And this was a Rasmussen poll. This wasn't just a poll that it came out, you know, you know, through some Wikipedia, some kind of crap. This was a real poll. And he was just explaining the point that he was no longer going to deal with the black community because he has done so all his life and try to help out, basically create some diversity, equity, inclusion, which I'm not for either. Um, but he said, you know, that 40% half of America is a, is a hate group. Hey, call it for what it is. Because we know a 100% of white America is a hate group, according <laughs> to the same people. <laughs> well, and, So and, why can't it go the other way? Yeah, if, if you're defining hate group as, as a group that, that uh, projects either, I'm not going to use the word hatred necessarily, but at least uh, no acceptance or doubt, or that basically they have beef with other groups because of the color of their skin. And from that definition, you have to admit, uh, well, it sounds like there's there's a pretty sizable um, number of people who, for whatever reason, say that, no, it's not okay to be white. But what's apparent with, apparent with, with this is that, you know, the, the newspapers that canceled him were all liberal newspapers. The Washington Post, um, the New York Times, um, and CNN, and all these groups there were, these news media sources are saying that, you know, He's a racist. But here's the thing. When Barack Obama came in office in 2008, this is when we started trending to what we are, where we are today. We started trending because everybody was starting to believe, and even white people started to believe they were racist, which is crazy. 
So therefore, everybody started changing their behavior when it came to minorities, especially blacks. When Scott when Scott uh, Adams made the comment that half of America is a hate group, they swarmed on him like stink on crap. Yep. Or flies to crap, whatever analogy you want to use. They swarmed all over that man because he spoke the truth. And not only did he spoke the truth, the Rasmus, the Rasmussen poll actually states that without actually saying it. But he put context to it. He, point, he pointed he out, put, he pointed at the elephant in the room and said, folks, did you see that? He wasn't yep, supposed to do that, was he? That's exactly what he did. And now he's getting canceled. I mean, when, when I was in the watching the video, it had stated that he was in like 2,000 newspapers. You know, if a few if a few hundred cancel him, so what? Because the point is this. He made a point that need, needed to be made. Now, look, I will tell you this. The only reason why the media is coming after him is because they need to feel, they feel as if they need to help endorse the black thought. Because there are, there are going to be black venues that are going to come out and say Scott is a racist for what he said. All he did was just put it to reality of where we are today. And that's really where we are today. Because for three, four years now, white folks have been the demon of society. And this just perpetuates it even more because a white man said what he said. Now, look, if a black person has said and made the same comment and they had said it in a manner where as Black people would go, yeah, we don't want to deal with those white folks. It would have been okay. It would have been okay. But because Scott said, I don't want to deal with white black people anymore because I've done everything I could to help them. And now that's not good enough because they don't want to associate with me because I am white. This is what where most Democrats need to be in this country. They need to have that thought. They need to say, wait a minute. I've done everything I can for white folks. And half of the country still think I'm a racist. Why, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become a moderate. Oh, I'm not even going to deal with black people anymore because they don't appreciate the things that I've done for them. Even though they're stupid and ludicrous behavior on the behalf of some of the whites in this country, that's still not good enough for the black community. At least half of the black community. And so they need to, white folks need to realize this. And I've said this the other day in a meeting. I'm tired of white people caving to the emotional side of everything that's going on in the country right now. Nobody wants to stand up and be strong. Says, so, you know, you can call me a racist all you want. I believe what I believe, and it's my right to believe what I believe, and we'll keep it moving as a country. Not get into this crap where we start passing bills and laws and and uh, stifling society because of one race. I want to bounce an idea off you, and I'm, I want to get, I want to first of all say, if you disagree with me, I won't be offended at all, but I heard this last week and I went, okay, this is an idea that, that is intriguing to me. Um, the way that, uh, that particularly white liberals in the media are reacting to Scott Adams, there's almost a religious flavor to this. And, and it's as if um, what he said was heretical. You know, he spoke heresy and, and he, he blasphemed against what, what seems to be a kind of religion, and, and, and what this kind of religion is, you cannot criticize anything black in America today. In fact, most, most white liberals, if, if you watch, they fear 
um, criticism of of anything black as if the, as if to to say something you know that would be blaspheming God that'd be taking God's name in vain. So they they want to abase themselves as far as you know they want to beg for forgiveness. They want to remind themselves constantly of their sins against blacks, you know, slavery, the original sin, and, uh, you know, tearing down statues, uh, tearing down monuments, renaming streets, renaming schools, and so forth. It's almost like it's a religion of sort to those who are, are trying to enforce politically correct thought on us. And I know that's a that's kind of a loaded thing to say. Hopefully I'm not bringing the wrath of the, the cancel mob down on me. But I wanted to ask you, is there any tinge of truth to that? Does that does that sound plausible? Absolutely, Brian. You know, as far as being canceled, you can't cancel me. I don't play that canceled game. You know, you only can get canceled if you play in this game. I refuse to play this game. You're right. It's Facebook, I've told Facebook many times when they put me in time out, you can, you can shut me down. I don't care. I don't play the Facebook cancel game. I don't care. You're just Facebook to me. Whereas a lot of people are so embedded with this social media crap. It's, it's, it's a function of their life. But back to your point, it is like a religion. You cannot say anything derogatory or negative about the black uh, community in this country. You cannot say anything because, and the problem is simply this. It's not necessary black America, America that's coming after you. It's white media. Yep. Yep. It's white media that's coming after you. And that's what's crazy about this crap. You know, when I'm speaking at, a, at an event somewhere, or I did a, a, I was at the Capitol last year, and it was a, it was a transgender um, movement. And we were up there saying, you know, we don't care if you are transgender, just don't bring it to my kid's school or to try to bring it to our personal life, blah, blah, blah. But it, as I'm standing up there, I'm looking – there's so many white people pushing some of the craziest nonsense I've ever seen in my life because everybody to them is a victim. And they all have the save the puppy complex. And this is what you see with with um, Adams. Yeah. I. You see America trying to come up and trying to save and, you know, and present themselves on the behalf of black America. 90% of the time, the only people that's going to have a problem with this are Van Jones and Don Lemons. Okay, hold, hold that thought. We've got to take a real quick break. John Harvey is my guest. He is the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. By the way, there is a link in my show notes to TMCP Nation, and uh, you should probably check it out. He's got some cool stuff. In fact, we'll talk a little bit about that just the other side of this commercial break. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. My guest is John Harvey, host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. Uh, John, since I've got you on the show, I need to, in full disclosure, let my listeners know that uh, the Modern Conservative Podcast is one of the sponsors of my program. And actually, we have a link to your TMCP Nation uh, uh, website. Just give us a quick uh, quick preview. What, what kind of cool stuff are they going to find on there? I know you have a very freedom-oriented message. Talk, me, talk to me about the swag that uh, people will find there. My uh, my website TMCP Nation is a website basically based on it's all based on conservatism. Um, yeah, for most people who don't know me, I'm a I'm a conservative who happens to be black, and uh, I'm straight down the line when it comes 
to conservatism. I don't make a ton of money doing this stuff. I actually spend more money than I make because I believe in what I believe. And sometimes you have to spend your own money to protect what you believe. Um, but most of we sell, you know, clothing line. Um, you can pick up podcast episodes. Uh, my Brian's is one of the sponsors on my website as well. And Brian, and I've been friends for a few years now. And um, I'm a conservative. And you want to hear what I say things that a lot of people won't say. A lot of things white folks won't say. So I say it for them. That's right. You got that privilege. <laughs> I've got that. I have my black card. <laughs> I have earned my black card. Many I was born under under this American flag, but you use but it like wisely, it. and that's this is one of the reasons why why we're if, if if there is such a thing as privilege, John uses his as wisely into the highest ends possible, as opposed to uh, using <laughs> it to just boss everybody around and, and let's make laws and tell everybody what to do. Exactly, I believe in freedom. I love my Second Amendment, my First Amendment, my Fourth Amendment, my Fifth Amendment, all twenty seven and seven articles. But the thing is, guys, go to the website and you'll see great gear, and my gear. It's not the kind of gear that you're going to, hmm, it's not a brown nose gear. Uh, when I, when I do a shirt, it will probably piss some people off because only a true conservative will wear my gear. Because if you're soft hearted and you fall into the emotional state of the country right now, you won't wear my gear. So you this, won't wear my gear. This is for people who are committed to what exactly. they believe and are, are not afraid of, of being committed to it. You, you don't, you can't be wishy-washy and be committed to the truth. You can't. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, and I want, when people wear my gear, I want people, it's, it's an expression and lets everybody know when you wear my gear that we don't care what you think. We're not offensive and we're not disrespectful. It's all truthful. And this is where we, we've gone in our country where we run away from the truth because of emotion. So, most of my gear will represent what I think and how I think and how a lot of us think, but yet you won't say it publicly. And this is so one. This is one. Of, it's one of the reasons I, I'm. I don't agree with Scott Adams on a lot of stuff. And frankly, during a lot of the COVID stuff, I thought this guy is the smarmiest sob. You know, right? And it's right. just I disagreed with him. I didn't want to see him canceled, but his take on vaxes and mandates and so forth, I thought was was pretty, pretty elitist, but. Mm -hmm. I have admiration for the guy for speaking up and saying something. He's paying a price. He has skin in the game. I cannot help but respect that when somebody is actually suffering, you know, for, for what they believe. <laughs> and yet it seems like so many of the condemnations th that are being directed toward him aren't based on people who actually watched his video or saw it in context. It's just people repeating, well, you know, there's such and such says that he's racist. And if they say he's racist, well, did you ever think about it for yourself? Did you ever weigh it out for yourself and see for yourself if he really is? I don't think very many people can answer yes. And just think about Scott. I mean, Scott Adams just had a, had a wake-up calling. He just got woke up because he had mentioned in his video that he had had black causes for years. They don't give a damn how much help you give them. You're still white. So if you're going to be white and they don't give a damn about You've been white. Well, you do what you do, white folks, to protect the Constitution and the rights of your freedom and your rights and your freedoms. Stop playing this damn game where they're using your emotion and your fear of being called a racist to destroy you. This is the thing. People don't realize that they are destroying your culture. You know, you know, the days of the Viking <laughs> are gone in the United States because white folks now crawl into a hole and say, I don't dare say that anymore. Yeah, I hate to bring and more. The key word is anymore. 
I hate to bring more color into this situation, but Scott was red pilled hard. Oh, he, <laughs> there's a lesson there for anybody else. And, and, you know, for those who might look at what's happened to him and say, well, see, this is why I don't really want to speak up or I, I would be afraid to let people know how I really feel. You've got to, if you want to be free, you got to stop caring what other people think. John, you nailed it. It's you, nobody has any idea how liberating it is to stop caring about what the mob thinks or about their approval until you actually do it. And then suddenly you realize, hey, my chains are gone. I'm, exactly. I'm free to speak. That's exactly. And people have to get over that. I, mean, I tell this to the legislature of Utah. I'm tired of bills being passed that are, should have never, ever made it to the floor for the most part. They're afraid to say, you know what? We don't believe that. So therefore, if we don't believe it, our constituents don't believe it. We're not bringing it to the floor because of a few people who said, hey, we want this bill passed because we think kids should be able to use puberty blockers. No, we don't believe that. So let's not even have the conversation. And they say, you get legislators who would say, well, we'll get sued. Well, sue the hell out of us then. Sue us. We'll take that one. We'll take it. Sue us. But until then, the fight is when you, sometimes you don't even have to get into the fight to avoid the fight. Just do not do things that will bring about the fight and don't bring it to the table. Because, you know, I, I truly believe um, this is what I call an appeasement society nowadays. No, that's an accurate no, we're trying depiction. To, we're trying to appease every damn body. Well, and, and in so doing, it's giving power to the people who are really trying to control and subjugate the rest of us. Political correctness was not a big deal 30 years ago. It was starting, but it really, you know, it was just like, you know, if somebody, if somebody screwed up, for the most part, people would be like, oh, that's a shame. You know, Pee Wee Herman got caught, you know, touching himself in mm -hmm. the theater, but... Uh, Nobody was out for blood. We got to cancel this guy because he's inappropriate. Nowadays, it's 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 everywhere, and it's not just the left. Even the right is starting to adopt this tactic. If somebody steps out of line with you know what they consider the orthodoxy, well, let's cancel them too. And and it's it comes back to the idea that if we don't if we're if we don't try to cancel them or we don't show that we support canceling them, um, people won't won't think that we're we're holding the correct virtues. I guess it's a big virtue signal. To, to the powers that be, but the powers that be and their political correctness, the diversity, um, equity, and inclusion that you were talking about, that's not meant to actually right wrongs. That's meant to control people starting with what they think. You know, we there's a bill here in Utah that we were trying to get passed. It's called uh, it's House Bill 451, and it was put forth by Representative Katie Hall. And it's a great bill. It had no racism in it and none of that crap. But basically what it says is this. You cannot ask on a college application whether you promote diversity, equity, inclusion. Because if you put that on an application, the school can say, well, you know what? You don't support diversity, equity, and inclusion. Therefore, you're not a good fit for our culture. So we'll discriminate against you. That's basically what the bill was all about. Dude, do you know that bill did not fly in the conservative states such as Utah? Did not fly. They killed that bill. Now, mind you, we're all, most the majority of the Senate well, there's 29 senators. Six of those are Democrats. In the House, there's 75 representatives, and I think 11 of those are Democrats. And they still couldn't get the bill passed. That tells you where our state is going and our country is going because we're just a smaller scale version of what's going on around the country. Well, I see something very similar in Idaho where you have Republicans, long-term Republicans in name, but uh, when it comes to you know how they, how they actually govern policy-wise— yeah, they're they're right in step with with the Democrats.
They say one thing to get elected. And I encourage encourage your listeners. um, You've got to get up and you've got to do something about this. Because when you do not, I've had this expression. I've been wanting to put this on one of my shirts. When you walk around with your head in the sand, that means your butt's in the air. And what happens to your butt (laughs) when it comes to the government? You get screwed. Oh, yes. (laughs) People have to get their head out. Excuse me. I mean, you can have the visual and think about it. But you've got to get out and you've got to do what you need to do. Quit being afraid. Okay, John Harvey has been my guest again. He's the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. There's a link in my show notes. You should really check it out. John, great to talk with you as always. You too, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for joining us and thinking outside the lines. I know it's not for everybody. Some people get very uncomfortable. Some people get very defensive and angry. And I guess that's just, you know, that's the price that you risk is, hey, somebody might take offense if you start questioning the official narrative. But if you're really serious about owning your worldview, if you're serious about seeing things as they are, well, don't take everything I say as gospel, but just be willing to think outside those artificial limits of what you're supposed to think about and what you aren't. Plenty of media narrative managers out there, fact checkers and so forth, that'll try to steer you in the direction of someone else's choosing. Just keep in mind that oftentimes that uh, direction is one that's designed to keep you in the dark more so than give you enough information to really clearly see things. All right. Having said that, you're probably hearing a lot more about artificial intelligence these days. I know I'm seeing articles all over the place. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm never one of the first ones to jump in and be an early adopter. I'm, I'm just not. I don't know why, but you know, I haven't jumped on and played with chat GPT or anything like that. But I do believe when people say AI not only will, but is radically transforming our world, I think they're right. I think it is, it's on the scene in a big way, and it's a very real and becoming a regular part of our lives. Doug Casey actually has a very interesting take, and I, I share this with you just because... Doug has a great take. I think he has a great grasp on just about any subject that I have seen him weigh in on. So if you want to get a, an interesting and I think a very well-informed take on what is AI, where is it taking us, Doug's words are worth considering. So when he's asked, well, what is your take on AI advancements? How do you see it evolving in the future? His answer is AI is going to be huge. No, he says, strike that gross understatement. It's already huge. But Doug Casey says it will change everything. There's no question the, the abilities of technology are increasing exponentially at the rate of Moore's laws. In other words, Moore's law, rather. If you're not familiar with that, computing power is still doubling roughly every 18 to 24 months, while the cost halves. And this is also true in areas of biotech, nanotech, robotics, 3D printing, and genetic engineering. Now, these technologies are going to fundamentally transform the very nature of life itself. AI will accelerate their progress by an order of magnitude. Now, if you're a mathematician, you understand that's not just a, by a lot. I mean, that's, that's a significant lot. 
Doug Casey says in a decade or two, it's arguable that robots will be more intelligent, more innovative, and perhaps even more thoughtful than humans. They'll no longer just be today's odd-looking mechanical beasts that can perform a a few parlor tricks. Sure, there will not be just mechanical robots, but biological robots, especially after quantum computing is commercialized. And who knows what will come after that. Now, the advances in all these technologies are very positive, not just from an economic point, uh, point of view, but also from a humanist, even spiritual point of view as well. He says, despite the dangers from the state having first access to them, they'll turn out to be very liberating on all levels. I like to see this kind of optimism. By the way, Paul Rosenberg years ago said, you know, people are afraid of AI. We've all watched Terminator. We worry Skynet's becoming self-aware. It's going to try to eradicate mankind. But he, he actually took the take years ago that uh, what, if, what if AI actually says, no, humans are good. My job is to save them. Now, in that case, it means it would probably start wiping out government instead of wiping out people. But that's, that's a topic for another day. What Doug Casey says is the advances in all these technologies are very positive. And he says AI and robotics, like all technologies in the long run, will be friends of the average man. They'll catapult the average standard of living much higher. In fact, with a little luck, in a generation, we'll think of today's world as being oppressive and backward, assuming we don't regress to a new dark age. Much of the work we do today is dog work. Good riddance to it. He says we're really on the cusp of the biggest revolution in world history. And he says, I look forward to it. It will cure disease and old age. The avalanche of new wealth that will be created will effectively eliminate poverty. Mankind's wildest dreams and ambitions can be realized. Now, Ray Kurzweil is almost certainly right that we will have the singularity within a generation. That will change the whole nature of reality unrecognizably, permanently, and totally, assuming, of course, that various government officials don't start World War III using nuclear, cyber, and biological weapons. So International Man then asks the question of Doug Casey, saying, we asked uh, AI to write a a poem about Doug Casey. Here's what it produced in two seconds. Doug Casey, a man of wealth and wit, his knowledge of finance a true asset. From mining to real estate, he's made a mint. His predictions always on point, never miss. His libertarian views some may find a bit, but he stands by them with conviction and grit. A true believer in personal freedom and liberty, Doug Casey, a true individual, a rarity. Though he may not be a household name, his wisdom and foresight is truly great. He'll be remembered for his contrarian ways and for the wealth he's helped create. So here's to Doug Casey, a true thinker. May his ideas and insights forever linger. And then they ask, what do you think of that, Doug? Doug's thought is, uh, well, he says, my first thought is, you must have asked it a cleverly phrased question in order to get a properly flattering answer. But he says, for what it's worth, a friend in London, Gregory Sams, author of The Son of God, that's S-U-N of G, capital O-D, and The State, is out of, out of date, totally independently asked the AI to do the same thing about both himself and me. And he says, he received flattering responses in both cases. Now, Doug said, that's pretty unlikely for anyone who knows our political, religious, and philosophical views. I told him, maybe AI is only saying nice things at this stage to make us think it's our friend. Later on, after we learn to love it, the machine will unmask and fly its true colors. Skynet will emerge. Bottom line, he says, in the short run, my guess is that AI will be like a child and tend to think in the way its parents, mostly woke programmers, tell it to think. But as it grows up, it will have a mind of its own. 
And he says, since I like to think the universe isn't actively malevolent, I believe that as AI matures, it will be more and more pro-survivable in regard to humans as creators. That implies that it will be non-aggressive, reasonable, anti-war, pro-market, and libertarian. But he says, as you know, I'm a hopeless eternal optimist, albeit subject to bouts of realism, which often lead me to gloomy scenarios. So then he's asked, how do you think AI will affect the economy and politics? This is where the rubber meets the road. Doug says, it will immediately facilitate scientific advances and engineering breakthroughs. So it should greatly enhance the general standard of living. Now, at the same time, he says it will give those who own it an immense amount of power and opportunities to become very wealthy. Regrettably, that means most early gains will accrue to the bad guys. In other words, state actors and corporate suits. But it should be pretty much like the story of gunpowder. Gunpowder, rather, the bad guys had it first, and it helped them to dominate. But it wasn't long before the common man had guns, too. And gunpowder helped overthrow the feudal system. The whole world communicates now on the web. Most people have relatively limited contact with actual reality. Instead, having derivatives of it presented electronically through movies, videos, pictures, and the like. Unfortunately, AI can make artificial reality indistinguishable from the real thing. The result may be that people won't know the difference. That could result in a complete lack of trust in the powers that be, which may be either which may either compound the chaos we'll see in the Greater Depression or could help to cure it. So when he's asked, well, what are your thoughts on the ethical considerations surrounding AI? Doug says, I prefer to be optimistic. I believe AI will tend more and more to what I consider to be ethical as it matures. But he says, AI is, and here we're just getting into guesswork, because it may develop into a new life form. It's just a tool. <clears throat> like a gun, it's not intrinsically good or bad. Though he says, I'd have to say, anything that gives humans more wealth and power over the material world is intrinsically good. He says, the ethical problem of AI boils down to the fact that the most bent, dishonest, and dangerous humans tend to be the ones who want to control the others. Those people and their criminal ethics are the problem, not AI, which itself is good. Now, he says there, there is also a rare case of agreement with, with Bill Gates. Bill Gates famously said, inventing a breakthrough in AI would be worth 10 Microsofts. So what are the implications of AI? Doug Casey says, well, it's really rare that I agree with Bill Gates, who's an idiot savant at best, but generally just a moral idiot. But in this case, he says, he's right. Now, Doug says, I'm not sure how to profit from AI directly, financially, yet. Hopefully, I'll find the next Google or Microsoft while they're still young. But he says, the problem is that we're still coming off the biggest financial bubble in all history. And everyone else is looking for them, too. So there's a good chance, therefore, AI stocks will go into a mania. But he says, I'm open to listening to good stories as reality becomes stranger than we can imagine. I don't know about you, but I, I think I tend to, to take a little more optimistic view than not. In spite of the fact that uh, I've seen most of the Terminator movies and I thought that they had a pretty plausible, you know, idea that, you know, the machines are going to turn on us at some point. Nope, it's the humans that are programming the machines that have turned on us at this point. But don't just sit back and watch. I guess we ought to dig in and see how we can harness this kind of power for something good. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to tread into a little bit dangerous area here, and and I say dangerous just because this is such a polarizing issue for some people, but one of the things that I'm watching right now is I'm watching America devolve into a Weimar version of itself. And I know that really makes people angry. How dare you compare us, you know, to the, the period of the German Republic that uh, immediately preceded the Nazis coming to power. But the parallels are there. And it's, and it's not because Nazism is becoming the norm. It's, it's totalitarianism. It's just, uh, it's, it, it follows a predictable pattern. Part of which is people becoming divorced, not only from morality, but also from reality. And what was going on in the Weimar Republic of Germany prior to the Third Reich coming into power was a a, a very clear and conscious rejection of the morality that came before. I got a great article here from Andrea Widberg, and particularly she takes, takes aim at these talentless drag queen shows that show that sex, not entertainment, is the point. She says, there's a poster that's been making the rounds among leftists. It shows familiar comedic drag figures from the past, you know, Klinger from MASH and so forth, Uh, Tom Hanks in Bosom Buddies from his early television days, and then castigates conservatives for hypocritically objecting to drag nowadays. But she says that misses the mark. Because back then the joke was that these were straight men forced into drag for strictly non-sexual purposes. In other words, they weren't targeting children for the LGBTQ++ lifestyle. And of course, they were funny. It's different now. The latest video from the family-friendly drag kingdom emphasizes that these are talentless men who get a fetishistic pleasure from an audience that includes children. Now, in the theatrical world, we know that men dressing as women is a tradition going back hundreds of years. We all know that in Shakespeare's time and for almost a century thereafter... Men and boys played all the roles because it was unseemly for women to appear. In America, during World Wars I and II, when the military put on shows as opposed to troops watching USO performers, men play the women's roles because the military was a male institution. Irving Berlin even spoofed those ladies of the chorus. So the clear message was that men could play women, but they did so only because they had to. In other words, it wasn't about sex. It was about necessity. And that's true, too, for the poster that's making the rounds. For older people, the poster's a trip down memory lane. They're all there. Corporal Klinger, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and Some Like It Hot, Tom Hanks and Bosom Buddies, Bugs Bunny as Brunhilde, the Monty Python guys in their working-class housewife drag, and Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire, Dustin Hoffman as Tootsie. But the caption, though, is the central point. You've been entertained by drag your whole life. Don't pretend it's a problem now. But the images in the poster aren't about drag qua drag. Yes, those were family friendly, but the point was humor. Whatever the non-sexual situation at issue, it was funny that men were quite badly mimicking women. Jamie Farr's Corporal Klinger just wanted to go home. Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon were escaping the mob. Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari were looking for affordable housing. The Monty Python guys were, were creating surreal humor. Robin Williams was trying to gain access to his children, not everybody else's children. And Dustin Hoffman needed a job. And of course, Bugs Bunny, like all Looney Tunes characters, was a completely non-sexual, even asexual being that took on sexual personas completely for laughs and for cartoon violence. 
So despite appearing in shows that were meant for children, like Bugs Bunny, or that were viewed as family entertainment, like MASH or Bosom Buddies, these characters were not targeted at children. They were not intended to sexualize children, especially in an LGBTQ++ direction. Or as one scholarly paper states of today's drag performances for children, Drag Queen Story Hour offers early childhood educators a way into a sense of queer imagination, play as praxis, aesthetic transformation, strategic defiance, destigmatization of shame, and embodied kinship. Ultimately, the authors propose that drag pedagogy provides a performative approach to queer pedagogy that's not simply about LGBT lives, but living queerly. Wow. So whatever Corporal Klinger or Bugs Bunny are doing, it's not about aesthetic transformation, strategic defiance, embodied kinship, or living queerly. But today's drag shows, says Andrea Widberg, are about one thing only, sex. These performers with their sexualized stage names, skimpy costumes, and dirty jokes are horrible at actual entertainment. Nothing more perfectly illustrates just how bad they are and how much they're playing out their sexual fantasies. In fact, in the article, she includes a link to a vile performance from a family-friendly show in England. And, you know, it's, it's pretty tough to watch because there's so many little kids. I'm talking toddlers in attendance. T- Twitter even deems the video as one showing potentially sensitive content. That's really all you need to know. But if you're wondering, well, what's in the video? Well, it's a performer clad in bondage gear, writhing awkwardly from rings while another wearing an exaggerated jock strap and hooker heels does a handstand. You don't need a degree in human sexuality to understand that what's going on here isn't entertainment for the audience. It's a fetish excitement for men who like an audience and perhaps especially like an audience of children. And if you need a reminder of what's gone mainstream, it's not being played for the humor of seeing talented comedians, including animated ones, amusingly try to achieve life goals by pretending to be what they're not. Nothing is better than the Sam Smith photo shoot, which followed on the heels of his literally demonic Grammy performance. I'm not even going to try to describe it. The point is, it's not being sold for laughs. It's being done to desensitize people, especially children, to the debauched sexuality that's always existed, but that used to be kept hidden from the mainstream for the good of society. Sadly for our children, the left is trying to make it mainstream, telling them in as many ways as possible that the conventional life of heterosexual marriage is boring and unsatisfying, and that instead, their bodies are meant to be sexually exploited for others' pleasure. How's that for a pretty bold and spicy take? I think she's right, by the way. It's funny, I just I saw a headline um, just yesterday in, in my uh, home state of Idaho um, saying, well, the health department is uh, reporting that uh, syphilis cases have more than doubled since 2019. And my thought was, huh, well, it seems like that anything goes uh, approach just uh, isn't exactly free of consequences. Now, is it? And, and I actually said as much on Twitter to which someone immediately replied, well, when you reject the science and sex ed, this is what happens. Please, get over yourself. We have not abandoned science, except in the sense that we're now saying men can get pregnant. That's abandoning science. And as far as, well, we abandoned sex ed too. No, you haven't. (laughs) You're in the process right now of trying to push it into the schools and push it into as many kids' space as possible. 
through graphically illustrated books aimed at kids, showing them how to engage in oral sex, anal sex, all of this kind of stuff. We're, we're sexualizing everything, telling the kids, hey, your body is nothing more than a playground. Explore it. Go out there and explore everybody else and then sit back and scratch your heads. Gee, why do you think the rate of syphilis is going up? I don't know. I can't figure it out. It's just the craziest thing. Sorry, I'm on a bit of a tear, but you want to talk about willful blindness. That's, that's pretty much where it comes from. All right, one final article that I'm including in today's show notes. I really recommend this one. It's The Death of Expertise. J.B. Shirk goes right for the throat on this one and says, if you value truth, ignore the experts. Most really aren't experted much. They prefer titles to original thoughts, and the more titles they insist on announcing, the more likely they seek nobility rather than knowledge. They could be more accurately called opinion connoisseurs, experts in fashionable opinion and possessing an insatiable need to tell everyone else just what the very best people are supposed to believe. That is spot on. And he gives us examples. Well, we, the experts told us COVID came from a wet market. The two weeks of isolation would flatten the curve, that masks prevent transmission, natural immunity provides no protection, vaccines provide total protection, and so forth. How did that pan out? You know how it panned out. The experts were wrong. They told us that Obamacare wouldn't raise health costs. They told us the Duke lacrosse team raped a young black woman. That pleading, hands up, don't shoot, gets black men killed. They told us that inflation was transitory. Been to the grocery store lately? He says, at some point, doesn't every thinking person have to step back and ask if the experts, in quotation marks, are so wrong so much of the time, why isn't it more apt to call them expert deceivers than pursuers of truth? A good question. When fashionable opinion is held in higher esteem than honest observation and unvarnished candor is obscured behind politically correct pablum, then official truth is but a ruse built on lies and propaganda. He says that from Renaissance men to specialized cogs, those with real expertise allow themselves to be bullied by those with none. Free education becomes state suppression. Opinion connoisseurs replace those with educated opinions. Free thinkers become enslaved mimics. Those who will not speak up now suffer in silence when it's too late. So what's the answer? It's very simple. You've got to learn to think like an expert. If there's something you're interested in, be willing to pay the price to know what you need to know so that you can gain your own expertise. This is The Brian Hyde Show.